Uh, welcome back, everyone. Greetings again. And if it works for you, I'd love, I'd love to see people as I'm speaking. So if it works for you to have your video on, that would be great. Uh, some of us may have uh, bandwidth issues and it doesn't work so well and that would be understood. I often think of the deeper aims of our practice as coming in three areas. We develop, first of all, we develop wisdom and insight. We develop more awareness, more mindfulness. We see more clearly our particular thoughts and emotions, our patterns of our experience. We work with teachings and develop more general insights into how things are changing and impermanent. We look into the nature of reactivity and so forth. We see where there's uh, grasping or pushing away of an unconscious, habitual nature. So our first area is we have wisdom and an insight. And then, you know, as we looked at the last times I was here, we also bring that together with kindness, compassion, more what we call heart qualities and that we connect our wisdom, our awareness, our insights, our mindfulness, increasingly with kindness, compassion, empathy, and so forth, what we call heart qualities. Sometimes those are the main ones mentioned, and they're just two, so it's very common to talk about the teachings of the Dharma as being like a bird that has two wings. Probably I've used that metaphor, you've probably heard it elsewhere. The teachings, the practices are like a bird with two wings. The wings are wisdom and compassion. In many ways corresponding to what I just mentioned. And in my view that can be unless things are quite explicit, can leave out a very important third area, which is the area of acting skillfully and ethically in all the parts of our lives. And sometimes people would assume that that follows from wisdom and compassion, but it's not always explicit. You know, and I'm thinking of... Uh, learning from a friend of mine, uh, uh, a Vietnamese monk named the Venerable Minduk. And we worked together for a number of years. And he wrote a PhD dissertation on the history of socially engaged Buddhism in Vietnam. And he told me 
from his knowledge and research that starting in the 1930s in Vietnam, many Buddhists said simply naming wisdom and compassion aren't enough. And they said, we need a third. You know, we've had wisdom and compassion for a thousand years, but we need a third. And they said, we want to bring in a third, and we'll call that courage. I, I link that to uh, skillful action, because it was very much courage in the context of you know, France still being the colonial ruler of Vietnam, and the Buddhist movement being involved in the anti-colonial movement. So for me, that's helpful to think of three rather than two. Wisdom, the heart qualities, loving-kindness, compassion, secondly, and then skillful action, particularly acting ethically in our lives. And the theme I wanted to explore uh, today sort of follows from that, which is which is very it's a very interesting fact that we can have insight about our lives, about other people, and about the world, and the insight can be connected with reactivity. It can be enmeshed in reactivity. I can see something really, really clearly and maybe be really judgmental about it. You know, I can have a lot of reactivity. I can notice something about myself. You know, I didn't follow through on what I agreed to follow through on. And I can be really, really hard on myself. And so I want to explore this interesting... Uh, quality of our experience, that having insight by itself doesn't necessarily bring us understanding and freedom if the insight is enmeshed with reactivity. And I'm going to explore that particularly through one manifestation of how insight gets caught up with reactivity and confusion. You could say, really, that... Uh, we, there's a mix almost of insight and delusion that they get mixed together. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't it be nicer if insight was just always insight? <laughs> Can you think of an example in your own experience where you saw something clearly, but maybe you were really judgmental about it, really negative about it, or grasping, or in some way the insight was connected with reactivity? Think to yourself of an example or two. Anyone have examples in your own experience? You can raise your hand. Yeah, pretty easy to find. Another way to say this is that I can be both right and obnoxious. I'm sorry it's that way. But this is what I find in my own experience and that in others. We can be both right, we can see clearly, we can be brilliant, and also obnoxious. So I'm going to talk about how to work with this in our, in our practice and how to, see it, how to see it more clearly. I was thinking that um, I remember a cartoon of a gravestone in a cemetery 
And on the gravestone it said, he had the right of way. <laughs> right? He, yeah, he had the right of way. In other words, he was acting completely okay, but actually something happened. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to particularly focus on this by looking, on, looking at uh, what I call the judgmental mind, which is one major expression of how we can be both right and obnoxious at the same time through being judgmental. I'm going to talk about what this is and how to work with it. And I'm particularly energized by this because I just taught a retreat or co-taught a retreat called Transforming the Judgmental Mind. We had a nice group. I see at least one person from, from that group and others who've uh, studied that subject with me. I see at least a few people uh, among our gathering here. So I'm going to talk about what I'll call judgments, the judgmental mind. And it's a little bit tricky in English because the word judgment is ambiguous. I can use the word judgment and mean that I'm judgmental, but I can also use it and mean that I'm not judgmental or reactive, that I'm simply giving what we might call a neutral discernment. And we use the word in both ways. And so let me, let me clarify that a little bit more. Sometimes we say in English, and I think it's probably probably similar in other languages. I don't know. We'll have to talk to Anna about uh, how that is. I think the word that would be translated as being judgmental would be, would it be uh, urteil? I don't know. Something like that. That would be a judgment in, in ordinary German. Uh, but, um, but in English, we would say the engineers made the judgment that the bridge was strong enough to withstand this level of winds. That'd be ordinary English. Or uh, we would say that uh, I looked outside and made the judgment that it's going to rain today. We would sometimes talk like that. And so sometimes we use the word judgment and we mean simply seeing something and there's not reactivity. We're not being judgmental. We just notice something. You know, we use the word judgment like that. And sometimes we can just see things clearly and there's no reactivity. I notice something in myself or notice something in another. What I'm calling judgments in the sense of being judgmental is that there is something added to it. There's something I'll call reactivity. Particularly, we notice judgments that are, are negative, where I um, push away something. I don't like something, and I become judgmental. Why did that person, you know, that person went right through the stop sign. You know, it actually happened. Uh, yesterday, I was going through a, a light, and someone came through at high speed, right through the intersection, uh, if I had gone another 30 feet, would have smashed into me, right? I could have been quite judgmental about that person. 
through years of practice, there was equanimity. No, no, just joking. Uh, but um, so we see something, and sometimes something we see it as very negative, and we become judgmental. We can also, and I'll get into this a little more detail, we can see something that we like and be judgmental in a more positive way. You know, like, uh, you know, one example my uh, colleague James Barras gives of telling a story about doing walking meditation at a retreat and thinking to himself, looking good, looking good. You know, it's kind of very positive or we think, you know, you know, uh, another example I like to give, my daughter is the best person in her high school class, very clearly, right? That would be kind of a positive judgment. I'll talk more about those later. Mostly the ones that come to attention are the negative ones. You know, what are, what are some examples of negative ones? Um, let's go to our first slide, uh, Carlita. This is from a cartoon uh, called Checklist for Feeling Pathetic. Okay, this is from the cartoon series Rhymes with Orange by Hilary Price. Number one, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. That could be a kind of a judgment, you know, in the sense of being judgmental. Examine your face closely in the mirror. Notice all flaws. Third, relieve, relive, I'm sorry, relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. And the cartoon shows uh, a woman saying, stupid, stupid, stupid. These are expressions of the judgmental mind. Number four, make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments. Number five, disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And the cartoon shows uh, someone saying, you look great. And the woman says, I think we could say judgmentally, don't patronize me. And then the last one says, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. It could be, take the form of being judgmental, say, I'm always going to be this way, or this will always happen, and something like that. Okay, so we can let go of the cartoon. Anyone relate to any of those? Okay, uh, it's quite a, quite a skillful cartoon. Yeah, and, you know, so we can think of other examples of being judgmental. Might be, I should have my meditation more together. Anyone ever had that at times? Okay. You know, part of my own personal study of being judgmental came when I was uh, doing a longer retreat and I had been very involved with my work and hadn't meditated in the previous 10 years as much as I would have wanted. And I was judging myself for not having meditated enough as I was meditating. Right. So what I'm looking for are examples of the judgmental mind. These are more, more negative ones. Of course, we can be very judgmental of what 
a family member, a partner just did. My partner just did this. Okay. Anyone have noticed that in the last three days? Okay. Okay. Right. Uh, we can also notice as we study the judgmental mind, I'm having too many judgments. So they come in many varieties. You know, um, we, we love to be judgmental towards political figures. You know, this political figure, blah, 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 this political figure. Anyone done that in the last year? Okay. Now, the interesting thing, again, going back to what I brought up initially, all of these can be linked with insights. I can be noticing something, and I can be noticing something really important, right? What I'm going to be pointing to is how the judgmental mind, and I'll use the word judgment from now on, and I'll talk about neutral, what I would in ordinary English would be called judgments that are more neutral, don't have reactivity. I'll talk about those as discernments, just to be clear on my language and for a little bit of simplicity of, of speaking. So I'll talk about judgments as, in, as meaning the judgmental mind is involved, even though in English it's ambiguous, okay? So just so you understand me. And then I'll use the word discernment to mean something which doesn't have any reactivity. What I'm going to suggest is that the judgmental mind, typically what I'm calling from, from now on, uh, a judgment is a mix of being insightful, seeing something clearly, and reactivity. That's what makes it negative. It's, I can have the seeing, the clear seeing, and it may not be connected with reactivity. I can notice the same thing. You know, I can notice, for example, my partner didn't do the dishes like she said she would, okay? That's an observation, and I can, be, I can actually say the same words and have judgmental energy, right? Or not, right? And so we don't know that something is a judgment in the sense of being judgmental simply by the words, right? It's connected more with the tone of voice, whether there's reactivity. As a teacher, maybe I could say something, my student always does this. I can say that judgmentally. I can also say it more with compassion, right? The exact same words. So we don't know that something's a judgment purely by the words or purely by what happens. It's whether there's reactivity. We can know that by the tone of voice, by the energy, by what's there in the body. But what I'm going to say is that what I'm calling a judgment in the sense of being judgmental is a mix of some, typically, some insight or noticing or observation connected with reactivity. That's what makes it confusing. Often when we see something and we think we see something truthfully, and so we don't say this exactly, but it's almost like we say to ourselves, okay, I see the truth. 
whatever I say is okay. Right? You know, another example that's important for me is in the sphere of activism, right? I can see injustice very clearly and still have a lot of reactivity, right? Anyone notice any time yourself as an activist or seeing something socially or noticing others where there's actually the judgmental mind even though you're seeing something important, right? It's very interesting, right? I've actually done workshops for activists on working with the judgmental mind. And I remember one of them I did, I've done a few, one of them I did uh, it actually wasn't on the judgmental mind, but it was with, it was at a conference called Spiritual Activism. And I was, say, I was um, offering a workshop on what kind of training does a spiritual activist receive. And first thing I did was just ask them, what are, you know, what are the issues in your organizations? And what they, the first thing that people reported is that we are often, with each other in our organization, angry and judgmental. That's what they said. In our own organization, we almost like take things out on, our, on each other. Right? Anyone notice that in organizations you've been part of? Right. And so that can, that can often happen. That's another example. What I'm going to suggest is that the fact that the judgmental mind is a mix of clear seeing, more or less, sometimes it's not always easy to see how, but in a lot of examples we can see, see that very easily. Because the judgmental mind is a mix of clear seeing and reactivity, what it means is that the judgmental mind isn't the enemy. We don't simply squash it, because if we squash it, we lose the insight. If I try to get rid of being judgmental, I may lose the insight. And a lot of my insights may be even ethical. My coworker didn't keep the agreement that was made, right? And I'm really judgmental. If I squashed it, you know, I may not talk with the person. I also, if I squash it, I actually don't transform it. What I'm certainly going to suggest is that the formula that we can work with is that we do a lot of work, and it's not necessarily quick, where we work with the reactivity in multiple ways to transform the reactivity so we disconnect the insight or the truth of the judgment from the reactivity. Not easy. We disconnect, we can do inner work, we can do outer work. We disconnect the insight or the noticing or the observation or the truth that's contained in the judgment. We disconnect that through inner and outer work with the reactivity. And then once that's done, we use the insight or the noticing for the, purpose, for the purpose of compassionate action. Yeah. So, very simple example, you know, to go back to some of those I gave. My partner didn't uh, do the dishes. Agreement was made. I'm really judgmental. 
Maybe I do some inner work with it for a while rather than just being really judgmental to my partner. I notice I'm judgmental. I do some inner work with the judgments. And then when I'm no longer caught in reactivity, I speak to my partner. That's easier said than done, right? <laughs> right? But that is the formula. Or same thing with my coworker who doesn't keep the agreement, right? I notice that I'm really upset about this. There's a lot of reactivity. I'm really judgmental. I'm angry, irritated. I do my own inner work. And then, as much as is possible, I go back and have that conversation free of reactivity, or for the most part, free of reactivity. And I think in both of those cases, the conversation's going to go a little better, isn't it? It's going to be a very, very different conversation. Doesn't guarantee anything. My partner may be very reactive and judgmental towards me. <laughs> you know, so you can see that this gets complicated pretty quickly, right? Uh, but I think it's helpful just to see that this is the dynamic. That when we're judgmental, we often almost implicitly think, I've got the truth. Whatever I do or say is okay. But that's not the case because there's, there's, there's the reactivity. And I think it goes without saying, but I think it's helpful to, to expand a little bit that what I'm calling the judgmental mind is linked with a great amount of pain and suffering in our world, right? in all sorts of ways. We know that interpersonally, right? You know, I, and I've seen and I remember one long-term relationship I was involved with and my partner and I, our dysfunctional patterns would be when my partner would be judgmental towards me and then in turn I would be uh, judgmental towards my partner and we ran, went around in circles. Anyone relate to that? That's something you've experienced, right? Right, and so um, it can obviously make relationships difficult or even dysfunctional. It can lead to splits and challenges in workplaces and communities. We can internalize the judgments in society because one thing I haven't mentioned is that we receive a lot of judgmental energy from the society. Think about if one is uh, gay or lesbian or trans, you receive a lot of people in those categories receive a lot of stuff coming towards them from the society, right? We could call that judgmental energy coming from social conditioning. Same thing with gender, you know, same thing with race, what we call race. Same thing with age. In all of these, there is social conditioning that is, we could say, is almost judgmental. You're not as good as. You're better than. All sorts of things like that. We see that. You know, I, uh, you know, I work, you know, I've been working with uh, the judgmental mind for a lot of years with a lot of people, probably several thousand people, 
and I can see the social conditioning really strongly. You know, I I work with uh, you know examples that come to mind. I work with uh, women who tell me uh, I still have the conditioning. My needs come last. Other people's needs matter more, and that would mean if I think of my own needs, I may judge myself for being selfish if I've received that gender conditioning. Anyone experience something like that at times? My needs come come later, yeah. And I've worked with I've worked with women in their seventies trying to change that still. It's very it's very powerful, right? Because unless we change the judgmental energy, it stays with us, including the social conditioning. You know, and I find that meditation by itself doesn't necessarily take care of the judgmental mind. I'm sorry to say, I would like to say that you do 10 years, 20 years of dedicated meditation, the judgmental mind goes out the door. Well, the retreat that I was talking about, where there was a lot of self-judgment, occurred after I'd been meditating for 25 years. Right? So there was still a lot of judgmental energy. And my, what I have found is that unless we focus on the judgmental mind quite in a detailed way, it hangs around. I remember talking with one monk who had been a monk for 30 years. And I asked him, what's your learning edge? And he said, you know, I still want people to like me. You know, there was some sense maybe of, uh, almost like of self-judgment, I'm not okay in some way, even with 30 years of probably intensive meditation and spiritual life. It doesn't uh, get at we don't get at the judgmental mind unless we focus there. I'm sorry to say that, and I'm glad to say that. <laughs> Both, right? It'd be nice if meditation took care of this, but it doesn't necessarily. You know, that there are, you know, it's uh, something we need to focus on, partly through bringing mindfulness to it, partly through... Uh, Partly through doing a lot of different a lot of different practices, and after that retreat where I really my, I was working with John Travis, and he had me do a lot of practices looking at the judgmental mind, and this followed several years when I was working with a therapist who had me attending to aspects of the judgmental mind. About four or five years of really focused work on this, and then I came back. I think it was 2002, and I offered a day-long at Spirit Rock on working with judgments. I, that's, I think that was my title, working with the judgmental mind. And I had a lot of people attend. And afterwards, I said, thank you, bye. And they said, no, we want to continue. And they said, okay, well, we'll have a group. We'll meet, we'll meet at my house. <clears throat> We'll have a group in two weeks. And we did that. And I said, okay, bye. And they said, we want to continue. 
I said, okay. And basically, I've continued with groups for 22 years, <laughs> right? And worked with a lot of people. I didn't have any idea that it would be such a powerful idea. And I'm actually working on a book. And if you have any good stories about your own work with the judgmental mind, you can be in my book. And you can change your name, age, gender, and identity if you wish. <laughs> okay. Um, but I started uh, teaching and working with it, and over time have uh, developed uh, you know, more of almost like a system for working with judgments. And I want to you know, bring that out this week and next week in our, in our teaching. And you know, the, the talk will be also on Dharma Seed. So how to practice with judgments. And I'm going to, I'm going to give several ways and really suggest, if you're interested, that you focus on this in the next week. And then we'll come back next week and see how we've done. So I'm going to give several ways. How do we work with the judgmental mind to, over time, disentangle the uh, insight or the noticing or the observation from the reactivity. And I want to say, before I give the different tools, that this can take some time, that this is longer term work. Let's go to that second cartoon, Carlita. This is uh, something that it would be possible if it was nice. Was a cartoon called The Surgery showing this uh, doctor talking to a patient sitting in bed saying, congratulations, Mr. Meguin, we've successfully removed your inner critic. And presumably there was a, there was a low copay. Very interesting. You can let go of the slide. Would that it would be so, so easy, right? You just go and have an appointment and your inner critic is removed. If we, if we did that, the equivalent of that at Spirit Rock, we could charge a lot of money, Carlita. We could solve all of Spirit Rock's financial issues with just one day, removing the inner critic for good. We'd have people come from all over the world, come to Spirit Rock, and we'd take care of everything in one day, right? But doesn't work like that, sorry. Doesn't work like that, and it actually can take some time. You know, because um, some of our judgments are quite deep. And in fact, some of them, I think, are related even to our society and culture. I remember I was actually present for a retreat where the Dalai Lama visited at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And he was asked questions. One question asked of him started like this. It was really more of a, a sharing. I think it was written down. And the person had written down, I don't believe that I deserve love. Please comment. <laughs> right? Pretty intense. The Dalai Lama, who speaks quite good English, 
was confused by the sharing. And he went back and forth in Tibetan with the translator for three or four minutes. He didn't really get what this was about. And then he blurted out, after a few minutes going back and forth, he blurted out, you're wrong. Talking in a way that I would say would be very Undalai Lama-like, <laughs> right? A little bit, you know, very brusque, not, you know, not obviously compassionate. He later said that it took him several years to understand the nature of self-hatred in Western culture. That doesn't exist in the same way in Tibetan culture. Yeah, it's not that one's better than the other. They have their own issues. But he actually took a period of time talking with Western psychotherapists about this deep self-hatred that he found in many people. And it took him several years to understand it better, he said. And I think it I think it, this is my own speculation. I think it's connected with the level of almost we could call it individuation and the sense of being an, primarily an individual that's more strong in Western culture rather than being primarily a member of a community, which would be the case in most cultures that have existed prior to the modern West. Okay, so my sense is that this very strong self-judgment um, has more recent origins. But of course, the judgmental mind wasn't invented, uh, was invent, wasn't invented a short time ago, right? You know, it, you can find that in all sorts of cultures in different ways. You know, um, you know, at least the translation of part of the sayings of Jesus, right? Go, judge not lest ye be judged, right? There, you know, there's tr at least the translation uses the same language. So it goes back. In any case, um, how, to, how to work with this? It can take a longer time because at its depths, it gets at some of our deep conditioning. And I, I, I'll speak more about this probably next time. How to begin practicing with judgments. I think I'll, I'll finish naming a few ways of practicing and inviting us to practice in these ways in the next week. Okay, number one, be mindful of the judgmental mind. Notice them when they come up. You, know, you can write them down. After a week, what are your top five or what are your top ten? Notice them in meditation when they come up. If you can, notice them during the day. Take some notes. Part of our mindfulness, as we saw in the guided meditation, is simply noticing what comes up. So notice, oh, I judge myself for this. Oh, I judge this other person for that. Oh, I judge this political figure. Just notice them when they come up in the moment. Label them judgment. It can be helpful to take some notes of what the, of what the primary judgments are when they're, when they're coming a lot. Sometimes the judgment will just come in a moment, and then it'll be gone. 
You can notice that sometimes it hangs around if it has charge for a while. When it, when it does that in your meditation or in uh, just in the flow of the day, if you can, pause and stay with the judgment. What's it like in the body when it's there? Stay there for 30 seconds. What's it like in the emotions? What emotions are there? When, I, when I'm judgmental of my coworker not keeping the agreement, oh, and you're starting to get into it, What's there? What's it feel like in the body? Bring mindfulness to it. What's the narrative or what's the story? You know, uh, you know, one practice which I sometimes did was at the end of the meditation, write down the three or four main judgments which have been there. Something like that. And if you stay with them, what's it, what, say what they're like. Again, note-taking can be helpful in this context. So we want to notice when they occur. We want to uh, be with them, explore what they're like in the body and the emotion when they last for a while. If you can do a pause during the day, this can be really an incredible practice. Pause for two or three minutes. You know, you just got off the phone. Your, your energy got judgmental. Pause. Bring mindfulness to it. What's it like? What's happening? This can be really really helpful. Sometimes we can, at the end of the day or maybe early evening, really ask, what are my main judgments that have been around? What are my main judgments that have been around today? Just write them down, notice them. You can ask the question, what triggered my judgments? What was the catalyst or the trigger? What, you know, maybe someone said something. So over time, we, this, these are a few ways we bring mindfulness to our judgments. We want to be really careful when we're studying judgments a lot of being judgmental about how many judgments there are. That counts as a judgment. I'm having so many judgments. You know, that may appear in your mind as just, okay, that wasn't a judgment. This is just the truth. <laughs> but... It's a judgment. It's a judgment in the sense of being judgmental. So you want to notice that. A second practice, which I strongly recommend for the next week, is doing at least 10 minutes a day of a heart practice. Something like loving kindness, compassion, self-compassion practice, maybe gratitude, something maybe that you're already doing, but keep that going. The reason for this is that as we go into exploring the judgmental mind, it's actually just to a significant extent often going a little bit more into painful territory. Maybe going more into that irritation or the anger or and we need some balance as we go into that. So be with heart practices, do you know, I could also add, do some things that bring you joy, be with beauty, uh, dance a little bit more, dance 10 minutes more every day, okay? Or something that brings you joy, you know, be with beauty, dance, listen to music, because as we're going into the judgmental mind, it's actually going into painful territory. We need things that balance it out, that bring more joy and good energy into our nature. Okay, that's, that's important. 
I also find it helpful to do a body practice every day just so we're more aware of our bodies. You know, I, I find it quite valuable to see how the judgment appears in the body. So whatever supports us to have awareness of the body can be really, really helpful. And then, you know, uh, maybe one last thing to name is it can be helpful in doing this exploration to set intentions at the beginning of one's meditation and maybe in, uh, in the morning or in the afternoon, let me notice when judgments come up and really being able to uh, set your intention to notice judgments. Remember, we, we say all the time that mindfulness isn't so hard, but remembering to be mindful is quite hard, right? So what's going to help you remember two days from now to notice judgments? Maybe you have a lot of your gung-ho right now, a lot of energy, maybe not in two days. What's going to help? You know, working with intentions at the beginning of a meditation once or twice or three times during a day is going to help a lot. Okay, so that's some of what I want to suggest as a few ways to practice. I'll bring in some more next week. Okay. So let me invite you right now to take a minute or two and set your intention for how you'd like to practice with judgments. First of all, how many of you are interested in doing this in the next week? Raise your hand if that's the case. Great. So take a minute or two, set your intention. What's going to help you in the next week to remember to practice and to actually practice? And what are your intentions? How are you going to, how are you going to do this? And then also reflect if you have any, any questions or uh, anything you want to share when we go in a moment to our discussion. Anything you want to ask, question of clarification, maybe sharing some of your own experience. Is there anything you'd like to bring up? Take another 30 seconds reflecting and then we'll open things up. Great, so I see uh, first Catherine and then Casey and we can, uh, we can have our discussion. Uh, Catherine, please, you can unmute and and uh, share. And if you have your Hi. camera on, if that can work, that'd be great. If not, that's okay. Um, okay, yes. I 
hearing you talk makes me think about uh, in my past how I can have a judgment about something my partner would do and then have compassion for them and then not pay attention to how what they did affects my well-being. Yeah. And so I could, I was, in my past, I was thinking maybe I'm rationalizing, you know, why why is this person acting this, this way? But then at the same time, I didn't realize until more recently that maybe, you know, something, they do something and it ends up hurting my feelings. And, but then I go back and I say, well, I have compassion for her, so, um, you know, then it's okay. And right. so now I'm trying right. to work more on, like, it's okay to have compassion for someone else and their actions, but try not to forget whether I'm being hurt or not and finding a balance there where um, I need to have self-care as well. So if you have any insight on how to manage that, <laughs> I'm deeply, deeply struggling with that. Yes, it's very uh, yeah. similar. You, uh, It sounds like you probably were, I mean, let me ask, uh, were you know, in relation to your partner, were you initially maybe judgmental and then brought in compassion? Um, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, probably. I probably was judgmental because something they did would hurt me, make me feel emotionally, feel emotionally hurt. Right. And then, so I would say, what are they doing? And I'm like, oh, it's just because of this. So it's okay. And I'll just ignore myself. Right. Uh, and any, anyone else here relate to doing that sometimes? Probably, probably most of us. Yeah, I, I certainly have. Um, yeah, it, it really falls under uh, what I've talked about, that um, we don't simply squash the judgmental energy. And to some extent, you were, I, I don't know if squash is the best word, but you were using compassion, you know, almost like probably with very good intentions as a way that effectively didn't recognize your own needs or didn't recognize what was important for you. And we can, you know, in some ways we can do that and in a sense misuse spiritual practice or spiritual concepts. Uh, just as we might uh, not even go to compassion, but we might just try to squash the judgmental energy or the judgmental expression as if that is a good spiritual response. And what I'm suggesting is that uh, the judgmental mind captures something, has something important, but it just gets enmeshed with reactivity. And so if you're being judgmental in the judgment that you had of your partner, if you look deeply at it, it has something to do with something that's important for you. Somehow we want to preserve what's important for you while transforming the judgmental energy. Right? And the different practices I name can do that. If you tend almost to go to 
maybe a little bit of being judgmental, and then you very quickly go to almost like a, I don't know if it's fair to call it a rationalization with compassion. Oh yeah, I can understand why that's happening, but that's connected with sort of not attending to your own needs. Then I think you could attend to your own needs in a few different ways. One is by just doing the inner work with the, uh, the judgment, the initial judgment, or you can really simply ask what's important for me and do a kind of self-inquiry and have the model of um, talking to your partner as much as possible, bringing up the issue, but without reactivity. So you may still need, if there is reactivity, to work through that. So that's the beginning, Catherine. Is that resonating some? Yes, I appreciate your insight and and communicating with me your thoughts on that. Yeah, it helps me a lot. Yeah, yeah. So we could we could probably talk for half an hour further about how to do that <laughs> better. But but let me go to Casey, and then to oh. Aaron and Stephen. Yeah. Thanks, Donald. Um, you had used the phrase "seeing something clearly and reacting to it." And I found myself thinking that in the context of uh, social justice yeah. or activism, um, when I'm, if I'm, uh, let's say I'm exposed to some sort of injustice, yeah. um, particularly I'm thinking about racism. Yeah. Uh, I see it clearly because I read the history, I am exposed to it intellectually. And then, um, I begin to feel compassion about it. Yeah. But to get off out of my chair and do something about it yeah. requires a kind of reactivity. And that's how it seems to me. It's like otherwise I would just read about it for the rest of my life and never do anything. Yeah. And I, I realize you can get into trouble as an activist if you're too reactive. <laughs> but it seems to me it's the compassion that pulls you in to the activity. And so I try to keep a balance there. Yeah. Um, that's difficult. So. Yeah, no, so it raises a lot of interesting questions. Thank you for that. So, so that um, I think the motivation for action can come initially from several different places. You know, and it doesn't necessarily, I think, come from reactivity, but often it, it does, you know, that for a lot of activists, the activism may initially primarily be motivated by anger, and there might be a lot of reactivity caught up in that. For them, I'm suggesting that doing inner work with the reactivity can, uh, it transforms the anger. Actually, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the transformation of anger is at the heart of our movement, right? And I think he was probably, you know, especially meaning reactivity connected with the anger. And so for some people, the motivation comes especially out of anger, which can be in part caught up with reactivity. I don't think anger necessarily is caught up with reactivity, but often it is, right? Uh, but I think that motivation can come also from compassion. Compassion can be a source of action. And there can be a lot of compassion without, and that can be primary sometimes 
without the anger or the reactivity being primary. So I think there are different sources for action, uh, not, not just reactivity, but sometimes it is that way. Then it's important really to transform it. Yeah. Uh, so it's really to see, but I think that, you know, you could um, really have compassion as your motivation or just like, a, you know, I think in my family, it was just assumed this was part of life to, you know, to act in the world, right? This is just part of what you do, right? It wasn't, it was just the way it was, you know, because I saw my parents doing that on, you know, both community levels and uh, larger social levels, right? And so that became part of my DNA almost, right? And so, but if you do notice that, you know, for a lot of activists, there is reactivity mixed up with the anger. And then it becomes really important to transform it while preserving the insight into injustice. Yeah. How, how does Difficult. that sound, Casey? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Erin, uh, please. Great. There you go. Hello. Hi. Uh, so I have a similar question along the lines of social justice. I'm a community advocate. Yeah. And um, I would let's see. It's been about a year now. I did not want this job. Um, I never asked for it. I've been trying to get rid of it since I got it, but no one else will do it. It's been very difficult. Um, I also have borderline personality disorder. Yeah. So I have very overwhelming emotions, and yeah. I have um, um, <clears throat> I struggle a lot with suicidality, which is another one of the symptoms yeah. of of. BPD, and um, if you're very suicidal and you go to Walmart, it turns into homicidality. Oh. Uh, not that I would actually hurt anybody, but I do yeah. definitely have some disturbing thoughts. So um, it's come to my attention that the criminal justice system in my community, they are out of control. Yeah. Like, I filed probably 40 complaints with the Department of Justice who told me to call the FBI seven times. The special litigation section is coming to town. Yeah. Um, they're incarcerating people, like literally lying and incarcerating people because they're mentally ill. Yeah. It says that in the police report, we think she's lying despite all the evidence because she's mentally ill and then giving toddlers to rapists. Right. Oh my, Let yeah. that sink in. And it's, it's a lot. They're doing it to a lot of people and a lot of families and it is infuriating. It's really hard. So my question is, um, how do I know when I am in reactivity versus responding? Yeah. A, and B, neither of it matters. None of it matters if there are children suffering. So even if I'm reacting, it doesn't matter as long as I'm doing my best to protect children in my community. Well, um, I, w I would say that the long-term sustainable work for both yourself and the community requires coming, you know, transforming as much as possible the reactivity. Yeah. Yeah, that's long-term. Um, mm -hmm. But I think what you're bringing up points to something I didn't mention that's really crucial, which is that a lot of, you know, if you go back to the basic Buddhist teachings, what's the nature of reactivity? It is grasping after the pleasant and pushing away what's painful. You know, at the level, let's say, of judgments about negative things happening in your community, what that, you know, that translates into, I am, there's a lot of reactivity maybe because the pain is a lot. 
the pain that I'm feeling for the children, for the community. You know, it's there's a lot of pain, and I'm it's kind of almost like driving me without almost me being conscious of it into this. And so one of the things that one can do is to consciously touch the pain individually and as a community. Not so easy. So it would mean, actually, you know, you could do this at the level of ritual, right? But, you know, some communities do this. They have grief rituals. They have, you know, you bring in the pain, but you consciously face it because when it's, un, when it's not dealt with consciously, it can very easily just lead everyone to, into reactivity. And what I'm saying is easier said than done. You know, it's not a, you know, it's for a community um, that could be quite hard to do, but that is what comes out of the teaching. And, you know, we can also do it individually by, by consciously being into pain. Maybe I'll tell some stories next time because I've experienced this with activism. You know, ways of, you know, I'm thinking of uh, having done a lot of practices which permitted me to touch pain. And before I was able to do that, it actually, uh, I was a little bit in paralysis and couldn't really act. When I touched the pain and it moved into compassion, then my action took a whole different level. It's very interesting. So that's a short version, Aaron. I'm sorry, it's a little bit brief, but that's the kind of the big picture. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And maybe last, uh, Stephen. And we'll, Stephen, if, I'm sorry uh, you're the last one, but I'm going to ask you to be a little brief, and I'll try to be brief too, if that's okay. 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 Um, I'm feeling um, self-hate yeah. in that... Um, I beat myself up. I think there's a little bit of mild depression. Yeah. And it really has to do a lot with retirement. Yeah. And I feel like I'm going anywhere. Yeah. And I keep on trying to set up a shop on a bubble. Yeah. And last week I um, tried to become a test examiner for the state. Yeah. I picked the test, but I didn't have the skills to move quickly. Um toggling about 12 different um, 12 different um, variables in a computer yeah you know at once immediately it was more like 20 yeah. actually yeah and I'm trying to bring, get myself up I don't know whether I'm getting slower because I'm 74 I turned that last week I don't think I'm slower but it just doesn't feel like I'm going anywhere yeah it just feels like I'm in a bicycle going nowhere. Right. Right. Uh, thank, thank you, Stephen. It's, it's a lot that you're, that you're bringing up, and um, there are different dimensions to it. You know, there's, among other, there's, we, you know, um, ageism is also very strong in the society, you know, and, uh, but, but I would say that, um, you know, I would say do the work that we're talking about uh, and notice when I'll bring up something I didn't mention before in terms of mindfulness of judgments, something I, I speak about at other times on Wednesdays is be aware of the level of intensity of the judgment. You know, you were using the language of self-hatred, which is pretty strong, right? Strong language. And 
when you're being mindful of a judgment, see where, where, where it is on level of 1 to 10. And we can be mindful of judgments when they're in the workable range. If it's, no, if, it's the self-hate is only a three. Okay, well that's that's good. So keep being mindful of that because in fact, I don't even want to use the word self-hate. I would say um, mild to moderate loathing. Yeah, uh, it still sounds to me it sounds strong, but. Uh, um, but anyway, be mind, you know, do, do the practices I recommend it. And I would bring in also self-compassion practice as very important. There's a very helpful, very simple three-step self-compassion practice, which you can do for two minutes, three or four times a day. Number one, say about some part of your experience, this is difficult or this is hard or this is painful. That's all, or your own language. Now that's number one. Number two, say, this is part of the human condition. Other people share this as well. Maybe other people going through retirement. And number three, offer yourself some kind words. Okay, I'm going to delete the whole part about self-hate. Okay. I don't self-hate. Yeah, but, but even if I you're... I don't like myself. Yeah, but I, but, but I think that. it's in the same ballpark as what we're talking about today. But do that self-compassion practice. You know, if I may not have taken notes, but it'll be on the recording at the end. It's from Kristen Neff. A three-part self-compassion practice can be really, really helpful for most of us, you know. And you can do it in the moment. So, And do that even if it's not really seeming to give results that you might like. Just keep doing it more out of faith, I would say. I'm going to completely uh, delete the part about self-hate. Yeah, that's, that's I, okay. That's okay. And really, I have everything in the world to like myself. Yeah. So I'm checking that. But I would say, if there's one level at which you talk to yourself, just like you were just talking just now, but do these other practices, because those will all those will eventually go a little deeper. Thank you. That's my suggestion. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, let's... Thanks, everyone. And let's finish up now. We'll go back to just... Uh, tune into the intention for the next week that you have. And if there are one or two words that you can have for yourself that you can remember for the next week, what are the one or two words that capture your intention? And then we'll close with the dedication of merit, knowing that we do this work, this practice for ourselves very much, but ultimately we also do it for others. Ultimately for all others. May our time together be of benefit for all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thanks, everyone. Feel free to unmute, and we could say goodbye. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Thank you, Carlita. Yay. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye. Everyone who's spoken, Donald, just wonderful. Yeah, thank, thank you, thank you. you. Till next time. Till yeah. next week. Yeah. I love Good night,
Bye-bye. Have a good one. Have a good one. Thanks, Carlita. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Donald. So sweet. Look forward to being with you next week. Yeah. Bye-bye. Hi, Carlita. Hi, Sylvia. I'm here for you. We're going to hang on. Okay. Everyone else, thank Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.